0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the US and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens. And as most of you know, I love this city. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture and vibe of New York. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, like tonight's, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood prior episodes we've covered topics such as american presidents who were from new york the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement in the city we've covered african-american history going back to the time of the dutch we've looked at the history of the city's lgbt community and the gay rights movement we've explored the history of bicycles and cycling the history of punk and opera and even our public library systems. And believe it or not, everyone, we have three. New York City has three public library systems, not one and not two, like everything in the city, which is great. Uh, We've looked at some of our greatest train stations and even gone, gone across some of our bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can get us on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight we're visiting a very special neighborhood, one that's dear to my heart. It's probably one that I have more family history than any other. Um, Next Monday is Columbus Day and say what you will about uh, uh, what Columbus, the the not so great things he did as well as the good things. He celebrated as being from Italy and Columbus Day is a grand day to celebrate Italian American heritage in New York and in the United States. And uh, last month, if it wasn't for COVID, we also would have had the San Gennaro Festival, uh, which takes place over 10 days in September. So I thought it was the perfect evening to talk about and visit little Italy. Uh, Our first guest is someone who's no stranger to our show. It's Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history and for over 40 years has been guiding New Yorkers and visitors to rave reviews. She does private walking tours as well as tours open to the public. Joyce has published two books, From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan, and the second one, From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. Joyce has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. And I love to say this. If this wasn't enough, the New York Times has called Joyce the Doyen of New York City tour guides. It's a level of recognition that any tour guide would relish. And we welcome back to Rediscovering New York, Joyce Gold. Joyce, welcome back to Rediscovering New York.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here again.
0: I, you know, I always love to ask people about, you know, where they came from before they made this 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 great city your home. You're not from New York originally.
1: I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania, eastern Pennsylvania, called Hazleton. But when I was 14 or 15 with my family, I moved to New York City. So I've been here for a very long time.
0: And you give amazing tours. I've been on a lot of tours that you've given. How did you get involved in the work you do, which is not just tours, but it's really bringing New York's history to life for the people who were lucky enough to find out about you and put themselves uh, on your walks?
1: Oh, thanks for asking. I was a computer analyst working on Wall Street, and one day in a wonderful old bookstore, Mendoza's bookstore, long gone, I uh, picked up a hundred-year-old book about New York prior to that. It discussed streets that I passed every day coming from the subway to my office, and suddenly the world of New York looked very different to me. People I worked with didn't know much New York history in the 1970s, so I started telling the history to people who lived here. And that's how the business began. I just Mm. thought it was something they needed to know.
0: And um, one of the many wonderful tours that I have gone on that you have given has been of Little Italy. Um, You know, the show I build is being Little Italy and we're going to be talking mostly about Little Italy, but we're also going to be talking about a neighborhood adjacent to Little Italy, um, the South Village. Um, Specifically, um, the two neighborhoods that Italians settled in lower Manhattan is different from upper Manhattan. Let's talk about Little Italy first. What was the neighborhood like before it became Little Italy, before it became settled by 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 people from Italy?
1: Well, you know, the very big waves of immigrants before the Italians and Eastern European Jews came in the end of the 19th century were people who came from Ireland in the 1840s and 50s and people who came from Germany in the 50s. So what became Little Italy was largely an Irish area, the notorious Five Points. And uh, Mulberry Bend was, uh, was a notorious part of that. And so one group comes in and the previous group moves out. And that's what it was before.
0: When did Italians start immigrating to New York in sizable numbers? And also another part two to that question is why would it have been at that time? And we, we could look at Eastern European Jewish immigration and point to pogroms in 1881 that sort of started a big wave. You know, when did Italians first start coming to New York in large numbers and why at that time?
1: Well, it's a good question because so much of New York history has to do with what was happening elsewhere in the world. In the 1870s, Italy, which had been a combination of separate states, gets unified, and people in the rural part of Italy, most notably the south, but some of the north as well, just loved their country, but they couldn't afford to live there. And so uh, by the 1880s, 18. 18- 90s they start their agricultural exports started getting big uh competition their wines from france their citrus fruits from florida and california and uh so they started moving out of southern italy and originally started going to south america to argentina to brazil both countries that were roman catholic and spoke romance languages but Argentina and Brazil started having epidemics and uh, revolutions, so by about eight, about nineteen hundred the exodus from southern Italy started coming to America to New York, especially mm.
0: How did immigration from Italy differ from the earlier waves, specifically from the Irish and the Germans who came um, you know se- uh, several decades before? Before well, Italians did.
1: in a number of different ways, before 1892, when Ellis Island opened, the uh, incoming places for people originally before 1855 piers—they just landed at the piers—or from 1855 to 1890 Castle Garden were there more to process immigrants rather than to keep out the undesirable. But when Ellis Island was active from 1892 to 1924, its main purpose was to keep out the undesirable, and that was the atmosphere into which the Italians came. So that's one difference. There was a terror. I mean, you got half a mile from the battery downtown, and you didn't know whether you'd be accepted or if somebody in your family would be accepted. There was also a big difference because many of the Italians, as I said, many of them loved their homeland. They, they just didn't have the money to live there. So many of them came here temporarily, they hoped. A quarter, as a matter of fact, of these birds of passage, as they came to be called, went back to Italy and maybe came back again. So another difference, therefore, was that there was more back and forthness. Another difference was that sometimes there were four men to every every female who came from Italy in the Irish immigration, the uh, more women came and of the German immigration, it was more families that came. Uh, And so the men came really, some of them had families already in Italy, they came to get the wherewithal to perhaps go back and buy a farm if they could.
0: Well, Ellis Island did open in 1892. It opened on January 1st. And uh, even though the first uh, immigrant was Annie Moore, the famous Annie Moore, the uh, the pub was named after her. um, uh, I think immigrants from Italy, um, as well as Jews from Eastern Europe, were the largest group of immigrants. But more immigrants would have come through Ellis Island from the country of Italy than from any other individual country in Europe. Um, did Italians have any um, experience at El Asylum that might have been different from people from other places?
1: Well, for one thing, they came incredibly poor. Uh, you had to officially have $25 in your pocket to be admitted. But I hear that sometimes there was a $25 that got passed back to the next person in case they were asked to have some money. And uh, they just were totally impoverished. They might come over with $7 in their pocket. Mm-hmm.
0: What were the neighborhoods in Manhattan that were settled um, by immigrants from Italy? And 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 another question I wanted to ask also was, um, uh, did immigrants from different parts of Italy settle in different neighborhoods specifically?
1: Um, yes. Your first question is where they settled in Manhattan. Is that your first question? Yes. Yep. Uh, well, they settled where primarily people from their part of Italy uh, had settled already. So, for example, if you came from Sicily there was a good chance you would live on on Elizabeth Street. Martin Scorsese's parents both came from Sicily. They they met each other on Elizabeth Street. Uh, If you were from Genoa, uh, that might be Baxter Street. If you were from Naples, that would be uh, Mulberry Street. So they talk about uh, making Manhattan a kind of patchwork quilt, uh, quite similar to what it had been in their native land as well.
0: Very um, well, I had, you know, I'm I'm uh, half Italian American, and my uh, mother's father's family, they were from uh, Foggia, which is sort of right across from Naples. And uh, my great grandmother, her father was uh, her mother was Irish, but her father was from Catania in Sicily, and they lived on Mulberry Street. And my great grandmother, who was from Avellino outside Naples, she actually lived in a building on Prince and Lafayette Street. Uh, So I wonder if there were other uh, uh, Neapolitans who were living in that building. It seemed, I mean, you know, people she would speak to in Italian and sort of, you know, were from a little village in that building. I remember it well growing up.
1: And also they came speaking different dialects. So I was reading about one family whose in-laws lived in the same building, but the in-laws didn't speak the same dialect, couldn't understand one another, and it made for a lot of peace in the family.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. What kind of let's let's talk a little bit about how people um, uh, made their way once they got here. Mm -hmm. Um, What kind of work would Italian men have gotten into who who was sort of fresh off the boat?
1: Well, to some extent, they picked up the jobs that the Irish had had before them. So the men would be barbers, they would be shoemakers, they would work at the docks, Mm -hmm. newsboys, street cleaners, pick and shovel, and to a certain extent the dirtiest, most dangerous jobs is what they have. They always have, on Ellis Island, they always have this joke, an Italian guy says, "Uh, when I came to America, I heard that the streets were paved with gold. When I got here, I found out three things. They were not paved with gold. They were not paved at all. And we were expected to pave them.
0: (laughs) Hmm. What kind, was there any particular kind of work that, that women from Italy would do?
1: Yes, about 94% of those women go into manufacturing. And to a very large extent, that was the needle trades, the garment industry. Uh, Some of them also went into candy making, which was a downtown uh, kind of manufacturing uh, job as well. And there was a tradition among the Italian families that it was fine if a woman wanted to work in a factory before she got married, but once she got married, she shouldn 't really leave the house because the family was the very basic institution among the immigrants if you if you want to generalize, and so then they were then she would often work in the tenement small rooms. But it would still be in the garment trade. Uh, She would have the material brought to her, work at home, and then it would be taken away.
0: Mm. Well, you know, one of the dark sides of New York history is that there was astounding poverty in Lower Manhattan specifically. There was poor health and a very high death rate. Um, Jacob Rees brought it to the public side by publishing his famous book, How the Other Half Lives. And you look at pictures from that book and you think, oh, my God, it's, uh, you know, how squalid and how, how unhealthy. Were Italian immigrant homes part of the horrendous conditions that Rees depicted, uh, depicted in his book?
1: Oh, yes. He did a lot of pictures. He and some of his uh, associates uh, photographed. They were some of the first people to photograph for changing, uh, changing life of uh, bandits roost and other spots of the five points and in fact even heart island the potter's field of new york then as well as now some of those were were italian immigrants as well
0: in fact we had the uh, first tenement law which is was called the old tenement law that came out as a result uh, of uh, that book which uh, required uh uh Uh, building of a certain time so that so that living rooms, you know, uh, living rooms and bedrooms would all have sources of light and fresh air, even if they were uh, air shafts. Um, We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours about Little Italy and a little bit about South Greenwich Village. We'll be back in a moment.
2: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc.
3: Now broadcasting 24 hours a day.
4: Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc
3: you listeners looking to boost your business why not advertise on talk radio nyc with very reasonable rates interested simply send us a message on our website talkradio.nyc
4: There we go.
0: Unmute. We're back. Live shows via Zoom. I love them. Uh, we're back to Rediscovering New York, and this is our 85th episode. Can you believe? We've been on the air almost two years, and this is episode 85 about Little Italy and a little bit about the South Village. Um, I want to give a special shout-out to my wonderful mother, who is listening from Boca Raton, Florida. Um, she would have been back in New York by now, but sadly, because of restrictions involving COVID, she's uh, holed up in her wonderful home in Boca Raton. I uh, wish I was there with you, Mom. I miss you terribly. Um, Joyce, before we get back to Little Lily, I want to ask you. You're you're in the business of giving tours, and you know, COVID, of course, has impacted um, your your business. But you're back now to giving some small person tours, aren't you? Some some private tours. Hold on. You're not uh, unmuted. Hold on a second. Uh, you have to unmute yourself. Sam. Okay, here you go.
1: Okay. Can you hear
0: yep. me now? Yes. Yes. Loud and clear.
1: Oh, okay. Yes, I'm doing tours for people's birthday. It might be four people, it might be two people. I'm doing tours for uh, a company that is promoting a certain neighborhood. And so they can kind of control how many people are on the group. I hope in the spring to start doing my tours where you just, the public tours you just show up. It's pre-scheduled and people can get on my mailing list. So I'd be glad to let them know when that starts. But a lot of people give my tours privately as gifts, and I like to be a part of people's celebrations.
0: Well, I, you won't find a bigger booster for your tours than me, Joyce. <laughs> Joyce's <laughs> tours are amazing. And uh, you can find them at Joyce com. And
1: you always come along and ask me very hard questions. So
0: yeah. well, <laughs> you know, about a private tour, I had the pleasure one time you put together a new <laughs> tour. Uh, of jewish immigration to lower manhattan and i couldn't believe it was a, i had a private tour from the amazing Tour gold it was one of my tour highlights with you it was it was it was wonderful um anyway moving back to to little italy and the southern part of of the village um uh italy is a very catholic country and of course uh, people who coming over were, were devout catholics um, was there anything uncomfortable about Italian immigrants attending church services when they arrived, and how? And what role did that play in how they, how, in their religious life?
1: Well, as I said, the Irish were here first, even though two and a half million Italians came through Ellis Island, and uh, much of the city was Italian. A quarter of the city in the 1850s had been Irish, so the Irish pretty much ran. The, um, the Catholic Church, according to the Italians. I mean, the patron saint of Ireland, St. Patrick's in 1815, uh, got the name on the city cathedral. So they often felt uh, sort of discriminated against within the Irish churches. Uh, so that was part of the problem. Also in Italy, some people opposed the Catholic Church because they felt it too much aligned with people who had power and not the public. There were also Protestant groups, Uh, Judson Church, for example, was started partly as a way, uh, it had a very Italian architectural look, but partly as a way to convert Catholics to Protestantism, and there was an element of that as well. But in terms of the discrimination, there were churches, um, for example, St. Francis on Houston Street, where the Irish prayed upstairs, but the Italian-speaking priests presided in the basement so there was an element of that and another reason was that the irish had a lot had been here for decades they had more money to support the church and the italians were very impoverished at that point
0: Mm. speaking of which when the uh, archdiocese moved uh its cathedral uh uptown uh saint patrick's the old saint pat's is on mott street well between mott and mulberry and uh, uh, Prince and Houston Street. Um, what did, did the old St. Pat's, did that become more of, of uh, uh, an Italian church after, after the cathedral moved uptown?
1: Well, it's very interesting if you go into the old St. Patrick's, now a basilica, to look on the wall of the names of the priests. And for a while they were Irish, and then they were Italian, and then they were Hispanic. Uh, which is more what they are today. So you can just see the changing neighborhood.
0: Mm. Oh, I'm I'm Jewish. Um, my uh, half of my extended family is Catholic, and my great grandmother and great uncle's parish church was in was in the old St. Pat's. So I have many fond memories, even of going to services uh, in the old St. Pat's, and it's it, it's a wonderful church. I've actually been there uh, for midnight mass on Christmas Eve. If anyone's uh, if anyone's never done it, it's it's certainly worth the price of admission. Um, what are some of the other major extant churches in Little Italy in the South Village now? Are there any others?
1: Well, the most precious blood is the National Shrine for St. Januaria, San Gennaro. And as you mentioned, there, since 1926, there has been a festival, 11-day festival for San Gennaro. And, of course, since that was where a lot of Neapolitans moved to. I yeah.
0: think my nephew was baptized at most. That's, that's further down toward Canal Street, isn't it, uh, between yes, Mulberry right. and Baxter? It's Neapol- like goes off through?
1: Off canal.
0: Right, right, okay.
1: Yeah, it's quite a beautiful church. And, of course, in uh, the the southern part of Greenwich Village, you have Our Lady of Pompeii, which wasn't there originally, but moved there in the 1920s, and uh, the one on Houston that I mentioned.
0: I want to move to a question about politics uh, about 100 years ago. Um, Why did uh, Italians have uh, so little political clout relative to, let's say, Irish uh, who were here? Why why was that...?
1: You may have noticed that politicos like people who vote for them. And since a lot of the Italians expected to return to Italy, a lot of them didn't become citizens and didn't vote. So if they didn't have a chance that you would help support them in their office, they cared a lot less about you. Mm -hmm. Also, Tammany Hall, which pretty much ran the Democratic Party of New York, was almost all Irish, which is actually why our great mayor Fiorello LaGuardia started out as a—even though his—you might say his attitudes were very much of the Democratic Party, but he knew he wouldn't get anywhere in that party, so he ran on the Republican ticket.
0: And also speaking about the polyglot, Fiorello uh, was—he uh, was Catholic, but his mother was Jewish. And he also—aside from speaking Italian, he also spoke Yiddish.
1: <laughs> yeah, he spoke five languages, and to uh, pay for his way through NYU Law School— He was a translator at Ellis Island, uh, and he himself was Episcopalian. So three three religions get you more votes in a city like this city. (laughs)
0: Why do many New Yorkers feel he was our best mayor? Well, and by the way, we're going, to have another, we're going to have to devote a future episode to some of the more colorful mayors of the city. And of course, LaGuardia is going to be a headliner for that show. But for now, you know, since uh, you know, he is a child of an Italian immigrant, why, let's talk about him for a minute. Why do so many New Yorkers feel that he was our best mayor?
1: Well, he was very. I know passionate. my mother does. <laughs> he was very passionate, and he was very passionate in social causes. I think having been at Ellis Island, when very confused immigrants came off the boat, it gave him a feel for what it was like to be impoverished, to be new to the country. Um, he restored public faith in City Hall in the 1920s. It was very corrupt. Jimmy Walker was our mayor. Uh, He ran the city so well that when Franklin Roosevelt became U.S. president in 1933, if he had a new idea to show the United States, for example, public housing, he knew that if he showed it off in New York, LaGuardia would show it off to best advantage. Uh, The first thing LaGuardia did when he became mayor was to go after the mobster, Lucky Luciano. For one thing, the uh, negative press and uh, caricature of Italians was that it was very crime oriented. And he hated that. And so changing that around was the first. But aside from all of these deeper reasons, he, uh, you know, in 1942, the newspapers of New York went on strike. LaGuardia felt terrible that the kids would miss out on Dick Tracy and the other comic strips, so he went on the radio and read all of the main comic strips with the different voices for the different characters. So that is what many New Yorkers who were around, at mainly children at the time, remember him best for.
0: Mm. Well, I, I, the little personal experience, family experience, I know he was not a fan of some of the uh, uh, less... Uh, uh, bright side of, of of some Italian immigrants um I have some colorful family history, shall we say and there's a a recorded of um, there 's a recording of Mayor LaGuardia on the radio in nineteen forty five who was uh lambasting some of my relatives and it was interesting also <laughs> to hear him hear him you know talk he um, um, my family name is Shilitani. And when he talked about that, he almost poked fun at it. And it was very strange to hear an Italian-American who was poking, who, who was almost being anti-Italian in, in the way he was speaking about, about somebody. By the way, if anyone is interested in that, it's a five-minute clip. I'll be happy to send it to you. Uh, it's on YouTube. You can email me at jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Which leads me to the next question um, uh, about Italian-Americans in popular culture. Uh, films about Italian-Americans have always been popular. Why do you think, Joyce? <laughs>
1: I think there's a family element. Uh, It's even a mob uh, organization is called a family. And I think people relate to that. People also like to think about people who do things that they would never dare to do. And I think those are two of the main reasons.
0: Mm. What are the summer? What are some of the major films about the Italian experience? Do you think?
1: Well, certainly, Godfather 1, 2, and 3 are probably the most famous. On television, you have the long series, the wonderfully done series called The Sopranos. Um, So there are a lot. Mean Streets is another one. Taxi Driver is one, although it doesn't take place downtown primarily. Um, But um, I guess these are some of the main ones, and they all have to do with crime. My personal two favorites are however have nothing to do with crime but they do have to do with family and that's both Moonstruck which I think I just I love
0: Moonstruck
1: the 10th time and my cousin Vinny and if any of <laughs> your listeners have not seen both of them I strongly recommend Moonstruck with Cher and other great actors and my cousin Vinnie with Joe Pesci and other very appealing people
0: you know, I'm almost embarrassed to say as many times as I've seen Moonstruck, I've never seen my cousin Vinny, but now ah. <laughs> I'm going to take it as an admonishment yes. from you uh, to do yes, that. Um, we have a, a short time left in the segment. You know, neighborhoods change over time. Uh, what displaced many Italians from Little Italy and also the South
4: Village?
1: Well, if Italians move to New York these days, they don't move to Little Italy. Uh oh. But one group that was kept out of the United States from the 1880s to 1965 were people from Asia. And so Chinatown, which for many years, 50 years, was just three little blocks, is expanding and it's pretty much taking over Little Italy. A lot of the buildings that look Italian because they have Italian restaurants are really Chinese or Asian owned at this point.
0: Mm. Well, Joyce, there's so much more we could talk about, but uh, we're limited to half a show, which almost is half an hour. Uh, Thank you so much. My first guest on, to me, what's a very special show about a very special neighborhood, Little Italy, and a little bit about the South Village, has been Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. You can find out about Joyce's extraordinary excursions, some of which now are private and small audiences, and so you can be protected in the age of COVID. And you can read about Joyce's tours at JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we have a very special guest. He and his family have been in business, it's fourth generation business now in Little Italy for 95 years and still going strong. We'll be back in a moment.
3: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC uplift, educate, empower.
0: back and you're back to rediscovering New York. Support comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646- 330- 4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212- 495- Zero three one seven. Our show is about New York, its neighborhoods, its history, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good morning, New York with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Brown Harris Stevens. You can hear Vince's show on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like my show on Facebook. It's called Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I'm indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You could reach me and my team at 646 306 Well, we have a special guest for the second part of our show, it's Lou DiPaolo. Lou is a noted trade member, Epicurean, and fourth generation purveyor of authentic products of Italy. His family-run business, DiPaolo Fine Foods, down on Grand Street, opened its doors in 1925 in Little Italy, and it remains there today. Lou and his family are personally involved in every facet of the business. Lou travels to Italy several times a year to personally select the country's best handcrafted specialties, ensuring excellence with every season. Topped amongst Lou's revered business practices, he explains the traditions and history behind his products, offering tastes to store patrons, many of whom have known Palos through the generations. Lou became New York City's very own beloved Italian cheese guru and a regularly featured educator and lecturer on Italian cheeses and specialty products. In September of 2014, he released his first book, Paolo's Guide to the Essential Foods of Italy. I'm looking at a copy right here and just looking through the pictures and reading the chapters. I'm getting hungry, I got to tell you. Um, Anyway, I cut short the title. Sorry about that. Paolo's Guide to the Essential Foods of Italy, 100 Years of Wisdom and Stories from Behind the Counter, to further share his passion and knowledge of Italian foods throughout the U.S. Lou's appeared on many radio and television broadcasts and been featured in numerous magazines and newspapers, including the New York Times, Vogue, Gourmet, Wine Spectator, and various publications on Italian cuisine. Lou DiPaolo, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Well, until Lou joins us, since we're going to talk about his book, and Lou, feel free to chime chime in at any time. Lou's book is amazing. I'm going to read you some of the chapters here. Not some of the chapters, but some of the, the titles of chapters. Uh, he talks about his family business in a century in Little Italy. It uh, talks about the regions of Italy. He's got a chapter on mozzarella, a chapter on pecorino, a chapter on rigotta. There's a chapter in the book on sea salt. Uh, there's one on coffee, olive oil, balsamic vinegar, and one on prosciutto. My mother's going to love that. I have to get her a copy of this book. And it's an amazing book. And the foreword is actually written by none other than Martin Scorsese. Um, Joyce, are you still there? Let's unmute Joyce. Good. So while we're waiting for Ludo to, to chime in, um, one question I wanted to ask you, Joyce, that I, that I didn't get to ask you is how did Italians adjust to the public school system when they got here? Did they like it? Did they dislike it?
1: Uh, the teachers in the public schools in 1900 were largely Irish women. And um, a lot of them thought it was very low class to be Italian. So one of the problems that the children had in school was that they would be put down by the teachers.
0: Ah, I think we have Lou back, Joyce. Uh, it's a,
1: I Hi, Lou.
0: I see your picture, Lou, but you're uh, not coming through on your voice now. There may be a setting on your phone, and thank goodness for the podcast, we can splice this a little bit, so we'll get uh, a tighter, <laughs> a tighter rendition for the for the replay. It's not anyway. Well, why don't you keep trying that, Lou, and then we'll um uh when when you get it, you know, just chime in, and then we'll and then we'll and then we'll cut in. Uh, as much as I hate cutting off Troy's Gold, um, you by the way, Lou, you might have to swipe up or down on the phone for the mic. I'm not sure. You have an iPhone, don't you? Was that a Joyce whistle I heard, or maybe something from Lou? <laughs> were you whistling, Joyce? <laughs> whistling in the dark. Well, you're not in the dark. Uh, okay, so anyway, back to schools. What was what, what was the experience of, of, of Italian immigrants in, in, in the school system?
1: Well, the kids were put down. I mean, a lot of people in this country really didn't respect the Italians. For example, their foods. Um, they... the the Italians ate vegetables that came out of the dirt and there were organizations that put them down for that. They basically said you should have more salads with a lot of mayonnaise and other things that today we would, we would certainly take issue with. So uh, the kids were told they were dirty, they were stupid. And it was quite horrible because when the Irish came, most of them, although not all spoke English, but when the Italians came, it was a very different story.
0: Mm. What were the origins of the San Gennaro Festival?
1: It was a festival to uh, honor St. Januarius, who in earlier centuries had saved the city of Naples. Uh, And it was in 1926 that the— Was
0: it from Plague that he saved the city of Naples, or—
1: I forget what it was from.
0: Okay. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot.
1: (laughs) Uh no that that's your way to come up with a question I haven't really reviewed for a while.
0: <laughs> well, this is um, an unexpected series of questions on this part of the show. So.
1: so a number of the churches had saints that and then had festivals for the saints. Mm. And so it was in 1926 that the basically the store owners, the cafe owners in Little Italy put out a kind of a kiosk and praised the saint. And as I mentioned, uh, the, the most precious blood uh, Roman Catholic Church at Mulberry uh, is the national shrine for Saint for San Gennaro. And it was very popular and they welcomed many other people from other, other parts of the city. and uh, it was it was very good. Now people, if they had a wish, a health wish, for example, would put bills, uh, money into the the uh, float of the saint. And then that money would be used to help some of the impoverished people of the neighborhood. So that's how it all started and became the thing that many people went to every year. This is the first year, I think, that they're not having it. Uh, it used to be owned by the people of Little Italy. Now, I well, I don't know. I don't
6: know. I don't
0: know like from on. Yes, you're on. We hear you back. I'm on. OK, I'm on. great.
6: <laughs> well, let me let me just say <laughs> something. <laughs> for, for one thing. Uh, I'm not really that computer savvy, and all, and even with these iPhones over here, uh, I'm better off with a flip phone, probably. <laughs> but anyway, I, thank you for the introduction.
0: <laughs> I you heard are you. are very welcome. You. Great, great. So, uh, <laughs> well, Joyce, thank you for that extended uh, discussion about San Gennaro. The one other thing I wanted yeah. to say was that it's, it's not just limited to Little Italy. I remember my grandmother, my uh, uh, mother's mother, she lived in Lyndhurst, and they'd also have a, fe- a festival at San Gennaro. And I remember the the, um, uh, the float coming by with the, with the statue and, all, and everyone pinning dollar bills to it. That was a, it was a long time ago. Lou, welcome to Rediscovering New
6: York. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: And um, everybody, I got to tell you, Lou has a great book, Palo's Guide to the Essential Foods of Italy. I've already read off the titles to some of the chapters, which I was going to do later in the, in the episode anyway. But anyway, um, Lou, you're a fourth-generation New Yorker and a business owner. Um, do you also, did you also ever live in Little Italy?
6: Or? Yeah, actually, actually, I do have a place in Little Italy. I'm, I'm talking to you from my place, my apartment in Little Italy. Uh, however, it was, uh, right at, after World War II that my, uh, grandparents moved to, uh, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. And Little Italy was always meant to be a place to come here. And when you moved into mainstream America, actually move away from this community. And they moved to other areas where uh, they had open air and gardens and a little bit more land and uh, something that they were more used to in Italy, uh, away from these, uh, these these tenement buildings. But but Little Italy is actually has always been my home. People oh. have asked me, uh, you, you don't live in Little Italy. I said, where does a person live? A place where they go and sleep for a few hours? or a place where they actually spend their time, their day, and communicate with people. And my entire life, I have to say, I lived in Little Italy. Mm. It was, uh, you know, from growing up here. I just want to say, uh, my grandparents opened up their shop in 1925, but it was my great-grandfather, Savino Di Paolo, who was the patriarch of the family who emigrated from Italy in uh, the turn of the last century in 1900,
3: what part We of actually it? Oh.
6: opened the first Apollos, And we're 110 years in business in New York City's Little Italy, going back to my great-grandfather, Savino Di Paolo. Wow.
0: So
6: uh, it, I continued the store wow. with my brother, Sal, and my sister, Marie, which was uh, opened by my grandparents, Conchetta and Luigi. And they were the ones who um, were supported by my great-grandfather. They had two stores open at the same time. Never competed with themselves because... Little Italy was a hustle and bustle of italian immigrants uh, and it was an area where you know the italians when they came here i have to say the first thing they did they tried to uh, dis- rediscover their new life learn the language of the community of the of the of the country maybe even change the way they dressed but they never lost sight of the foods that they mm. were accustomed to in their country and even today Many people associate themselves as being Italian, even though they might be American American, third generation, born here in America, but associate themselves with being Mm. Italian simply from the foods that they eat. Mm.
0: Well, I got. Mm. Yes. I'm half Italian American, and actually today is my first wedding anniversary. And uh, my husband and I um, had our uh, wedding feast. At Garjulos in Coney Island, um, a great place. Thanks also to my wonderful mother, who I hope is still listening, who was so instrumental in helping us plan that amazing event. Um, which I can I can still taste the food. Wow. Um, we're gonna take a break in a minute, but but I want to ask you a question, Lou. Um, Subsequent generations who go into family business have different sometimes should we say levels of passion and sometimes even different levels of competence sometimes they just go into it but but you've really seized the De Palo bull by the horns and done some amazing stuff. You travel to Italy multiple times a year to choose the best products for your business um that's a job I'd love to have uh, um how do you decide where to go in Italy when you go on these trips?
6: What, you know? well, Italy, Italy is divided into 20 regions. Like we have 50 states in the United States. Italy has 20 regions. Each region, um, I often say Italy is 20 countries in one with 110 personalities because each region has its own food and wine culture. And it was important for me to go, and over 40 years ago, I started, 45 years ago, I started to go to Italy on a regular basis. And while going there, I had to learn, break bread with the people that made the products that I sell in my place. And only then I could really give the proper education to my consumer that I knew what the product was about, how it was supposed to be. And uh, I went to Italy to find the old new products. Well, it doesn't make sense, old new products, but it was the old products of historic products of Italy it really wasn't known here in the United States. And it was my uh, passion to bring that to the American consumer. Mm. And that's what I started to do on, um, on a regular basis um, over the last, made over 100 trips in the last 45 years back and forth. Wow. As
0: and I said, that's a job that I would love to have. Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Lou DiPaolo of Palo's Fine Foods on Grand Street in Little Italy. We'll be back in a moment.
3: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.
7: Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19-related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, Employment Law Business Law Attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc.
0: back with a little speeded up version of our music today uh, to episode 85 rediscovering new york on little italy my second guest is lou de Palo of de Palo's fine foods on grand street in little, little italy well i want to ask you about your book uh, the first book is de Paolo's guide to the essential foods of italy it's published by Ballantine press everyone by the way and i'm looking at it right now and it looks so sumptuous um with all the chapters that i mentioned before um what was the inspiration for you to write the book
6: well uh, many people have been asking me to write a book uh, for uh, quite a, quite some time um, I have I do have a lot of knowledge in the foods of Italy but I said I'm going to write a if I'm going to write a book and I said this to my uh, agent I said I needed to write a book to tell a little bit of the story of my family I needed to tell the story of of the products that Italy uh, Produces the food products. And I needed to tell the story of the people that produced it. But I had to do it through stories. I'm a storyteller. And the way I needed to get the message across was through the stories. And it also had to do with an underlining theme that I wanted to present. Food to me is very important, very essential to bring people together. I think if the best moments we can have with someone is to sit down and have a meal together and share one with this wonderful meal and food to me brings people together on a wonderful note. And if you'll notice, when you read the book, the book is full of stories, stories about the product, but I tell it through a relationship. Somewhere along that line in that story, there's some type of relationship between people, whether it's with my great grandfather and the uh, Iceman, or uh, it's with myself and someone, uh, a, a small farmer in Italy, there's a relationship between that. Uh, and and this, good or bad, there's a relationship that food brings these people together. Mm. And uh, this is what I wanted to do. My agent, my agent said, no, you can't do it. It'd be too much. So said, well, then I don't want to write a book. Eventually, I put it together. And uh, when it all came out, he said, you accomplished everything that you wanted to do it. So that's the reason why I wrote it. I needed to tell those stories. Uh, about oh, that's the product, great. The people behind them.
0: Well, speaking of the stories and speaking of Italy, let's go to Little Italy. Um, before we talk about some of the changes you've seen in the time that you've lived and had your business there, um, what is it that you like about the Little Italy of today? What Describe the vibe of the neighborhood.
6: Well, uh, you know, I've seen many changes in Little Italy, okay? Uh, first of all, I just want to say one of the greatest satisfactions that I've had being in business was the fact that I worked with my family. And and you had mentioned before and, uh, how the, the Italian family was so very instrumental, they, how close they were. And uh, I could say working with my father, with my mother, and my father with his parents and my grandparents with their parents means that this, the business was, took on a different type of persona, it became part of our everyday life, sharing um, the joys and the hardships that a business has to do it, but we shared it with our family together. Today, I have to say, we work with the fifth generation, our children, my sister's children, my children, um, my, my brother and my sister, myself, we're there almost every day, and it's the greatest reward we get. But what took place in Little Italy... At first, we, I thought it was very, very sad. When I was in the Air Force in 1969, I was in Travis Air Force Base, and I went over to San Francisco, and I noticed in San Francisco, uh, North Beach, the Italian community there, there were a lot of Chinese stores right next to Italian stores. And I came back in, uh, in the early 70s, and I said to my father, I said, well, boy, I was in San Francisco, and the little Italy section over there is mostly Chinese. And then I noticed the first Chinese store that moved north of of Canal Street. And by 1980, 1982, we were the last Italian store on on our block, on the corner of Mott and Grand Street. And at first, it was a little bit depressing. I saw our world starting to close in on us and and disappearing. And then my father took ill in 1990, and, and... My father said, showing us the keys of the store, said to my sister Maria, myself, and my brother Sal, and said, listen, uh, this is time for you to close the place. And he says, unless you want it. So he gave us the keys, and I went to my brother and sister. I said, you know, let's not focus in on outside. Let's think of our store not as an eyesore in a changing community, but a shining jewel in a changing community. And I realized at that point that I was looking at my... With the new immigrants that were coming, I was looking at my grandparents and great-grandparents, how they first came and settled in the community. And and to me, uh, I think the survival of Little Italy was due to the fact that the Chinese came in and started settling. And Little Italy, what few members of Little Italy remained, realized we needed to to develop the story of the Italian immigrants. And Little Italy was part of that story. And we needed to hold fast and keep the tradition alive. What's happening today in the community is very different. It's no longer a um, only ethnic community, Chinese or Italian. It's both and it's much more. It's become gentrified. We have the part new of, wave. Of part
0: of it's blues. become Nolita.
6: <laughs> well, Nolita is uh, invented by you guys, the real estate <laughs> people. They invented the name Nolita. Uh, for me, Nolita is nothing but Little Italy Nolita. extended into north of of um, of uh, uh, Kenmare Street. So, so the point the point I'm saying, and, and the reason for calling it Nolita was, in my opinion, raising the raising the rents in the community. But forget about that. Little Italy is becoming gentrified. Chinatown is becoming gentrified. And because of that, the community has become a, the spirit of immigrants. The spirit of the Italian immigrant lives today in Little Italy, which businesses like mine, the uh, Ferrara family um, right across from me, the Aleva family, the Rossi family and a host of Italian restaurants that have been around for many, many, many years. That's the spirit of the Italian immigrant, the spirit of Little Italy. And it will always remain. We have four businesses in business over 100 years on my block. Family businesses that have been in business for over 100 years. There's not too many blocks that could make that claim. So so Little Italy is here. It's here to stay through the spirit of... uh, of the Italian immigrant through families like mine.
0: Um, we're almost out of time, Lou, but I want to ask you a question about business in Little Italy. Would you have any advice for someone looking to open up a business in Little Italy right now?
6: Well, uh, in anywhere you want to open up a business, there's th- there's really a few things you have to do. You have to understand your customer, your client, give them the best service, give them the best quality, and give them a reasonable price. And it doesn't matter what type of business you open, whether it's a food business or a clothing business or a barbershop. You're going to be successful in Little Italy or any other community. Little Italy is very, very uh, active. A lot of people, a lot of tourists come down. We're not a tourist store, but we're a tourist attraction. But we're not a tourist store. And Little Italy still has a lot of life. Left in it, and I encourage people to come here. In uh, little Italy, we got to get through this uh, COVID right now. But other than that, uh, it, it's it's still going to be here, and it's still going to be going strong.
0: One last question before we sign off: um, Do you know if most of your customers are regulars at the Palos, or uh,
6: we have we have generations of customers, generations? I could say we're five generations in the business, and we have five generations mm-hmm. of customers. Same families for many generations, whether they live in the Little Italy community or they make a, what I like to call a pilgrimage to come and visit us.
0: Mm. Well, great. Lou, thank you so much for being our guest on Rediscovering New York this evening. My second guest has been Lou DiPaolo. He is the fourth generation, but not the last generation, of DiPaolo's Fine Foods. And Lou's book is called Palo's Guide. His first book is called Palo's Guide to the Essential Foods of Italy. I'm sure it's available on Amazon. It's published by Valentine's Press. Thanks, Lou. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us tonight on our journey to Little Italy. You can like us on Facebook. It's Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Liebowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
3: broadcasting
5: 24 hours a day. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the mind behind leadership here on topradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader the personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders.
4: Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m. We focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc.
2: Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc.
3: Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates. Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc.